Radio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. It is The Long and the Short of It, the golf podcast, and my name is Dylan Rogers, and with me, Simon Hill and Dale Hayes. And today, another interesting guest as it relates to not just European tour golf, but world golf as well. A Ryder Cup winning captain, a fantastic player in his own right. Simon, tee it up. Sam Torrance, our guest today on The Long and the Short of It, 44 professional wins. He won 21 times on the European Tour. And interestingly, and Dale, you probably know this, but only fellow Scott Colin Montgomery has accumulated more European Tour titles without winning one of golf's four major championships. So, Sam, it goes without saying, one hell of a player. He absolutely was. And Sam, thank you very much for joining us. What a career you've had. You came from a golfing family. Your father's a PGA golf professional. You turned professional as, a, as an apprentice at Sunningdale Golf Club, 1970. Joined the European Tour, I think, in 1972. And if I'm right in saying so, your first full tour that you ever played was right here in South Africa on the Sunshine Tour. Would that be right? Uh, no. No? <laughs> well, well, I no, no, because I was definitely on the European tour before I came over to South Africa. Um, I actually, I was at Sunningdale in 71 and went on to uh, start of 72. I'm not sure. South Africa, do you have any idea what year my first tournament was there? I think your first tournament was at our golf club, at Swatkop Golf Swat- Club. Yeah. When you, when you fleeced all our members on the snooker table, they're still <laughs> looking for you. <laughs> it wasn't difficult. They forgot to take off the triangle. <laughs> See, I, I'm, I mean, it is a long time ago, so I'm a wee bit confused myself. Uh, I, I never knew. I mean, uh, my favourite menu was finding Mike's Kitchen. Uh, That's right. That was in Johannesburg, just one of the best restaurants. I'd never seen a salad bar before on this thing. And as you can see now, I, I, I didn't visit many more after, but still. No, neither's Dale. Don't worry about it. <laughs> 1972, you won the Henry Cotton Award for the best rookie of the year. And I mean, you just went from strength to strength, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a slow start. Uh, I, I, I missed my first nine cuts, uh, eight cuts. And in the ninth one, the John Player Trophy, I, I was leading with nine holes to go. Uh, nearly the heart attack, finished ninth or something. But I did get my card and yeah, uh, an exceptional award. Uh, it was the Henry Cotton Rookie of the Year. And uh, my, my prize was two weeks with Henry Cotton in Portugal, which was just outstanding. Uh, Roddy Carr was there, Warren Humphreys, a couple of guys that used to come down to South Africa as well. Now, just talk about how you started in golf. Your dad was the club pro, but he also, in those days, he looked after the golf course. He did pretty much everything at the golf club, didn't he? Yeah, we, when I was five, we moved to Rossendale in Manchester, uh, where my dad, it was a nine-hole course, and my dad was the pro and greenkeeper there. I think we were there for five years and, and, and I immediately took to golf uh, at age five when I got there, whacking it about and started to play. And it's a true story that it, it was almost my last year. I was eight or nine and I shot 39 on the, on the course. And I've come off the course and I've told my dad this and he, he gave me such a bollocking. I said, I've told you never to lie to me. You've got to tell me the truth. There's no way you shot 39. I said, I did that. I did, honest. Right, come with me, come with me. And you know my dad, Dale, he was a scary old bugger. And he <laughs> took me to the first tee and he came round with me and I actually shot 39 again. So I guess he believed me then. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was my friend. Then we moved back to Largs when, when I was nine. And from then on, it was, uh, I used to in the summer play four rounds a day. 
my dad, he didn't force me to practice. He worked me very hard, which is obviously uh, was good for me. But I, I hated it, to be honest, in the early days. You know, it was just I wanted about playing and I always get score. I always wanted to try and get, you know, break 90, break 80, break 70, whichever, just keep going until you did it. And uh, just fell in love with the game. I think 69 watching Jacqueline and Nicholas is, is a strong memory in my mind about where I wanted to be in this world. Did you watch that Open, 69 at Royal Lytham? No, the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup. When, and actually when Jacqueline won the Open, I was in the pro shop at Rutenburn and ran out shouting up the first fairway, Jacqueline's won the Open, Jacqueline's won the Open. Because it was enormous in those days for a, a British player to do that. And then, of course, the next year he won the US Open. It, it was installed in me at a very early age. I'm very lucky to have uh, someone that loves you, my dad, uh, teaching me my whole life and being born and brought up from age five until I went on tour uh, on a golf course. So it was always available for me to go and play. And I was never anywhere else apart from the snooker hall. <laughs> <laughs> Jacqueline was very lucky to win that Open because... I played in that Open as an amateur. I was I just turned seventeen, and I made the I made the pre-qualifying, and I got drawn with Roberto de Vicenzo. Oh wow! What a and thrill! The, you know, it was, three, it was years after, two years after he became champion. Exactly, exactly, and it was Roberto de Vicenzo and Mister Dale Hayes on the first <laughs> tee. <laughs> and the first hole, as you know, Royal Lytham, par three. I had my tee shot four feet from the hole and hold the putt. So I led the open after one hole. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I missed the cut easily, though. Yeah. <laughs> and the, same thing, the same thing happened to me in 73 at Trun. I was out right. first and birdied the first. And I was leading the open. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how we both remember that. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Did you make the cut, though? I can't. I can't probably. Probably because it's, it's not. Uh, I haven't erased it yet, but. <laughs> so you, you went one better than me then. Only slightly. When your dad went back to Scotland, there's an interesting story when you were left to look after the golf shop. Oh, no, can't tell that one. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on, Sam. Come on. Come on. Oh, damn, damn. Where's the, who's going to hear this then? Only the South African audience. Yeah, right. just our parents. Just our families. <laughs> oh, Dale. You know. There's a funny story, I'll tell you that one first. And it was when uh, I was, David Fairhart asked me to do Fairhearty Live. So we've done it at my house. Uh, I've come back from Mauritius a day early, left my family there, I've come home alone. And uh, he arrives with this truck. And the exact same scenario, uh, tell me the ticket story. And I said, no, no, I can't tell that story. There's no way I can tell that story to the world. He said, no, come on, Sam, you've got to tell us that. So I said, look, I'll, I'll phone my mum. So I go into the other room and I phone my mum. I said, Mum, they want me to tell the ticket story. No, don't you dare. You cannot discredit your father. No, you cannot possibly do that. You can't do that. She says, all right, Mum, calm down, calm down. Okay, I'm not going to tell it. Okay. So I hang up with my mum and I come back into the snooker room where we're all sitting. They're all sitting. They're all laughing and cracking up. Because I still had a mic on. <laughs> they recorded, recorded the phone call with my mother. But, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Yes, 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 yes man. <laughs> Dale, you're not supposed to make the guests feel uncomfortable. <laughs> it's one of the best stories. Okay. You're... Okay. 
So um, I'm 10 years, nine years old when I come back to Largs. And I'm uh, 10 or 11 when uh, my dad was head greenkeeper. Uh, my mum ran the shop. And my father asked me, or told me, he didn't ask me, you're going to watch the shop. So when I come back from school, I got home about four o'clock each day and I had to go and sit in the shop, uh, which is just not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be out hitting balls, playing, doing anything but sitting there. And it was just horrific. And uh, so I'm, I'm taking green fees, selling balls, tickets, chewing gum, teeth, and all that stuff. So one day I'm sitting in there, and four guys come in, uh, four green fees, I rip off the tickets, put the tickets down, take the money, and off they go. And about 10 minutes later, five minutes later, I noticed they'd left the, the, the tickets on, on the, they were actually sitting on a box of blue tees. And the tickets were blue, so there was a wee bit of a coincidence there that that's maybe why they didn't see them. So I grabbed the tickets up, ran out of the shop, looked up the first pair, and they're gone. They're on the first green, par three up the hill, so there's nothing I can do. I come back in, and I just put the tickets under the bench. So I'm sitting there. Another 10, 20 minutes go by. Remember, I'm 10. And uh, I look down, and I, and, and I see the tickets, and a bell goes off my head. And I think, if I sell these tickets again, money's mine. <laughs> I've, gone from, I've gone from the worst job in the world to the best job in the world <laughs> I used to get tickets out the bin I'd always put the tickets on the blue box of teas in case they forgot them again and I had a wee store of them and I was just having a ball just having an absolute ball until my mother caught me with £35 in my wallet now this is it's 1961 maybe 62 Maybe 63, I'm 10, so 63, 64 it is. So 35 pounds was an awful lot of money. Uh, and where did you get this? So I, I didn't want to let them think I've been stealing off them. So I told them, my mum the truth. I said, I've been selling tickets twice. And she went ballistic, just screaming at me. For God, have you any idea of the implications, what you've done? Your father will lose his job, will be out in the street. Get to your room. So I've gone to my bedroom. It's now five past four. And my dad doesn't finish the five. And I'm sitting in there and I'm petrified. Just, I'm just, I'm, I'm dead, really. Basically, that's where my mind's going. <laughs> yeah, it's they, over. They kill me. And about 10 to 5 to 5, I hear the tractor coming down, pulling up outside the, the, my bedroom. And, and, and the blinds are shut. I can't even see him, but I can hear him. And I hear him giving the orders to the two men, Tommy and Jimmy, the, for the, the next morning for the greenkeeper. And then I hear him coming down the steps and into the kitchen. So I'm up, my, my ear's at the door, which is about eight feet from the kitchen door, but I can't hear a word. I cannot hear what's being said. And it was not mentioned. Then I went on. I wasn't going to say anything. And nothing was said, <laughs> ever. Until years later, I'm having a few drinks with my dad. I, dad, I remember my mum caught me selling the tickets. So I said, Jesus Christ, how could I forget that? What a situation we were in there. What? How could I forget that? It's, I, I know, all right, but why didn't you give me a bollocking or a belt or something? He said, for Christ, how can I do that to someone when I was doing the same thing myself? I'm really serious. I, I, I've given you that story, but I'm I'm still not certain. I'm going to pour myself another glass of wine just to make sure. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, that'll settle you up. <laughs> no, I'm already settled. Obviously, I told you. 
<laughs> now I just got to let myself let you accept it and use it. So we'll carry on, dear. You got that one out of me. Let's carry on. <laughs> Sam, Sam, that wasn't yeah. that wasn't the first time. Uh, well, obviously set you up uh, for later fleecing members at Sunningdale at the age of seventeen. Is that right? I did do quite well. <laughs> uh, I, I, well, I, I'll go through the process. I, I, Jimmy Letters from John Letters Golf Company was a great friend of the family and a great friend to me uh, and a great friend to Lee Trevino. And uh, he got me the interview with Arthur Lee, who so was a, very much a renowned pro at Sunningdale, a uh, character and a huge gambler, would play anyone for anything and beat them every time, basically. And so my mum and I flew down. It, it was the first time I'd ever flown. Uh, we got to Heathrow, got a taxi out to Sunningdale Golf Club. We were invited into the clubhouse. We had smoked salmon sandwiches. First time my mother and they were both Scottish. The first time either of us had had smoked salmon. Uh, and then I got a nine-hole interview uh, with Arthur Lees, uh, which I played nine holes with him. And uh, I got the job. So uh, I started beginning of 71 in the shop. I think I got £2.50 for a round with a member, something similar for an hour's lesson, which you had to give half back to Arthur. Uh, I got £5 a week wages. And uh, you went from there. And I I can remember distinctly standing at the door of the shop and anyone that went past, I would say, I know who they were. And Queenie was one of them, Michael King. Morning, Mr. King. Uh, Do you have a game today? You know, I was just desperate to go to the shop. Just had to go to the shop and go and play golf. But uh, the members were great. Some fantastic, John Davis, Badger, um, very, very famous uh, amateur golfer, uh, looked after me beautifully. I met a chap there, Norman McKenzie, who I played golf with, uh, who was married to a South African, Jane McKenzie from Cape Town. And uh, they liked my game and sponsored me onto the tour. But uh, I was earning pretty reasonable money uh, uh, from the members. I wouldn't say fleecing them, but uh, <laughs> I did okay. But that was how it started. And uh, then off we went onto tour. Growing up as the son of a famous golf instructor, it just so happened that you were pretty good at the game. But was there always the expectation that that you would go into golf and, and make a living out of it? Uh, no, there was no expectation. Uh, my dad was a greenkeeper and, and, and head pro. He, he, he did like to play and he did work harder than MD I've ever known. But he kind of pushed me into it. So I don't know. I didn't see any expectation coming. I just saw a, a love and, and something I loved doing. And, and there was no complaints coming from me about doing it. So I, there was no expectation of me going on tour, but uh, there was in my mind. I can remember being on the range at Rossendale. So I'm, I'm between five and nine. And, and this is God's honest truth. And I was on the practice ground. And I thought that the backswing was a waste of time. Like... <laughs> why don't you just put the club in the perfect position at the top and hit it? So I can remember being on the range and, and doing this and thinking, I'm going to be the best ever, and this is going to be the reason why. Of course, it was a load of bump. But I'm, <laughs> I was eight or ninth, but, but I do remember that. I really do remember thinking that. So there, there was aspirations and hope in my mind from a very young age. That's where I wanted to be. And your dad coached, the, I mean, he coached a number of, of really, really good players including Paul McGinley, Stephen Gallagher, and famously, of course, he helped Padre get to those two open titles in 07 and 08. They were, they were extremely close, weren't they? Yeah, three majors he won, yeah. 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 Uh, Dad didn't, you know, we, we used to have huge arg- arguments when he became, came on to. I mean, I was his first and only pupil for a long time. You have to remember that. He didn't start teaching these people until much later on in his life. Uh, and 
he always used to say to me when I started going to, if you don't take it with it, you won't find it there, which meant, and he was 100% right, and I still believe it to this day, that you do your work at home and then you go to tour on tour with a, with a free mind and you just play golf, which worked fantastically for me until he came on tour. So now he's on tour with me and I'll come in after the first round and, right, come on, let's go and hit balls. Well, what for, Dad? Next week? We didn't find it, Dad, we're not going to find it here. And we're hearing ours about that because when I finished my round, you would never find me on the range when I finished. I was gone, out of there, go to the movies, go and read a book, relax, do whatever I wanted to do. But I was not there slaving and, and pounding your mind. And if you've got a fault, and remember in those days, the practice facilities and all that, you didn't have coaches around. If you had a fault in your swing, you're only endorsing it into your swing. I just saw no benefit to it whatsoever. Then you got a fault. I mean, I phoned my dad every night in life. And I so miss that, you know. I phoned him after every round in life and we went through every hole. God bless him for listening. <laughs> but he would tell me, he would tell me exactly what was wrong. You know, it's either this or it's that. It's one or two things. And it was always simple things. We, we, we had a, a good structure of, of swing thoughts that we would bounce back on and one would solve it. And that's all you needed was one thought. It never really lasted more than a week, two weeks, a good swing thought. And then you went back to your, your your bank of swing thoughts, like 10 or 12 swing thoughts that you, you then used. And your game as a youngster, Sam, um, I've seen it been written that uh, that you were quite long off the tee and perhaps had a, had a special tee in your, sh- in your short irons. How would you describe your game as it evolved as a youngster into working at Sunningdale and then onto the tour? Well, there's a very famous man, uh, Paddy, well, he's a famous man at Sunningdale, Paddy Packenham. Uh, I used to play a lot of golf with him. Uh, and he told me I'd never make it because my short game wasn't good enough from 100 yards in. And I took that to heart and I worked my, my backside off to get better at it. And it became probably the best part of my game. Driving was probably my best part. But uh, I listened to him and I, I worked hard on, on my short game and, and sort of got the full package. I was a great driver. I was a good iron player. I was a good short iron player. I was a good putter, great wedge player and very good at bunkers. But long irons... <laughs> I mean, I'd need a wall behind the green to stop any of my three or four irons get into three and two irons. We had to use them in those days. But very early in my career, I mean, a long time ago, I, I found a seven wood. I think I was the first guy on tour to use a seven wood. And I'll tell you what, it transformed my career because I really wasn't very good with long irons at all. I, I could hit them, but because I played in wind all the time, they were low and they were runny. There were none of those graceful Almost one of my first tournaments, I played at Wilmslow with Nick Faldo. Sorry to digress, but uh, yeah. I think it was the second hole. And we got like 190 to the flag, and it's just over the front left trap. And it's his shot first, and he hits a two iron. And if I was still standing there, I promise you, I could have not hit this shot. Uh, it, it just came up and landed like an old dog in front of the fire, about 10 feet <laughs> in the pin. And there was just, I, I couldn't visualize this shot. It just wasn't possible for the way I flighted the ball. But you know what? We can't be perfect at everything. So the seven wood sort of gave me that type of shot. Do you think the invention of, of, of the hybrid came a bit late for you then? Do you think you would have been a, a, a serious I, proponent I, of that? I, I can't hit a hybrid for love nor money. Worst club ever invented for my game. Every time I tried it, I just uh, a pull hook or a slice or a horrible flight, anything. Never got to, never one understood the concept whether you actually hit it like an iron or you hit it like a wood. And I believe you're supposed to hit it like an iron, meaning more descending blow than a sweeping blow. But uh, it never suited me, which was fine. Uh, I was a good three-wood 
five wood and seven wood player. So that was the, the hybrid was my seven wood. Early on in your career, you fell amongst thieves. You know, you befriended some of the some of the the, the wilder guys on the tour, like uh, Jack Newton, Hobdy, uh, Simon hey. Hobdy. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and some of the best friends I ever had. Absolutely, but and what times we had! I mean, we had fun, you know. And and that's not even talking about getting drunk or being stupid. It's just we enjoyed each other's company. We loved having dinner together, and loved telling stories, uh, and and great people. And that's what life was about for me. I always wanted to enjoy my life, no matter what. I wanted to be the best golfer in the world. No question about that, but also made sure that I enjoyed my life. I mean, this it wasn't a dress rehearsal, and that was from day one, basically. John O'Leary obviously was very well known amongst older people in South Africa because he played here for years and years. Just remind us about what a lovely man he was. Well, he was extraordinary, John. A great storyteller. And, and, <laughs> and just a great companion. I think the stories, Jesus, where do we start? We used to, I mean, we were in, traveled together, stayed in each other's places, uh, and often we'd come up, we'd come back to Largs, where I was from, and he'd come and stay with us. We used to go to this pub, it was actually a, a kind of restaurant, a bar in a hotel, Ernie's Bar. And we used to get there late on a Sunday night, virtually quite a few weeks running. And there'd always be five, six of us, my mates from Largs. Arms and Aleri uh, uh, and telling stories, and he used to tell this joke. He, he tried to try to tell this joke, and it was about the young boy with his dad on the bus in Dublin. And the, the, you know, the, the little boy looks up and says, "Dad, Dad, is that the Liffey River?" He says, "I don't know, son. I don't know." Okay, Dad. They've gone a bit further. He says, "Dad, Dad, is that a Connell Street?" I don't know, son. I don't know. Now, the kids ask this seven, eight questions that the father can't answer any of them. And Aliri never finished the joke. Now, I'm talking going on six months. I've been back in Largs uh, maybe 10 times and saying, right, John, tell us the story. Tell us that joke. You got to finish that joke. And, he, and basically, the end of the joke was the wee boy asking for the 10th time something different. Uh, Dad, is that the famous church there? He says, I don't know, son. And, they, and they, the dad says to the son, but if you don't ask, son, you'll never learn. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the punchline. That, that, that was... It's Six not, months! It's not, oh, and, it, no, and he still never got to the end of it. I think he actually ended up telling it on tour to get the end of it. <laughs> I mean, John was married to a beautiful uh, Ingrid South African girl used to make his clothes, the famous ones, the black and white trousers and the fuzzy hair. He was a very handsome bloke, John. And I'll never forget him winning the Irish Open. Uh, it was actually, I was defending and he, he won it the year after me, uh, hitting a beautiful one iron into the last green at Port Marnock, just feathering it in. I just feathered her in, Samuel, just feathered her in. <laughs> <laughs> there was another story, I'll tell you another story I just remembered that we're sharing a room in Wales, we're playing at Porth Call, and he's lying tenth, and I'm leaving. Get into the last round, and get up in the morning. I've got a, a car from uh, David Wickens. Remember David Wickens? Still, uh, what was it? British car auctions? British car auctions. I've got this beautiful big car, 
and both our sets of clubs are in the boot. Okay, so it was a nice night, nothing untoward, a couple of beers, whatever, chill, up for breakfast, so we're packing up, we're leaving. Uh, we're going to course for the last round. Remember, I'm leading, he's 10th, and latest breakfast, it's time to go, 10.30. We're playing at 12.30 and 1 or something like that. We're going to drive out. We'll buy. So I can't find my car keys. They're nowhere. They're not in the room. They're not in my clothes. They're not in my case. And we spend an hour and a half looking for these keys. And um, we just can't find them. Uh, so eventually, eventually, uh, we got crowbar and, and prized open the boot of the car, got the two sets of clubs out into a tank and off to the golf course. And we both played the last rounds. And <laughs> I don't think we had a great day, but I can remember coming up to the ninth green and the hotel proprietor is standing behind the last green, the ninth green, and he's waving my car keys in his hand. I think, oh, thank God for that. They found the keys. So... I come off, off the ninth plane, I go over and I get the keys. I say, where the hell were the keys? Where were they? So O'Leary and I are on the third floor, sharing a room in this hotel. They found my keys in the toilet in the second floor, in, a, in the toilet that's in the hallway in the second floor, on the, on the floor beside the toilet. So I'd obviously got up in the night, put on my trousers, gone to this toilet, sat down, Keys had fallen out. I'd done my business, got up, back to bed. The weirdest part of the story is we had a toilet in our room. <laughs> <laughs> but Sam, Sam, you, you tell that story and you went through a long period of time where you had a lot of injuries and they oh, were no. really strange ones. Now, well, you, you say that, but I can, I can assure you and I broke my collarbone and my sternum. That was one. And I broke my toe. Now, that's the only two incidents I had in my career during sleep. The first one was breaking my toe. And the, honest to God, it was in Largs, in my flat. I'm packed. The suitcase is unfolded, if you know what I mean. It's not closed up and zipped up. It's on the floor, ready for the, the toilet bag to go in the morning when I'm finished, because I'm going on to the next morning. And I got to go to the toilet in the night and totally forgetting that's there and kicked it as I'm taking a step. I didn't kick it purposely and I broke my toe. That was the first one. Now, the second one was a wee bit more interesting, was at the Belfry. I'm playing the English Open and they've given me this beautiful suite I'm in. And in the middle of the floor is a, a plant pot that is, it's about five foot high and you couldn't put your arms around and cuddle it. It's it's bigger than that. And I woke up in the night and saw this shadowy thing. And I, I in my, what, what became relevant was I thought someone was in the room. So I ran at this thing. And Christ, I soon found out it wasn't a human being. <laughs> it was as big as freaking plant. And I broke the plant. I knocked it over and smashed it all over the ground. Dirt and flowers and everywhere. And me holding my chest. Now, this was nine weeks or six, seven weeks before the Ryder Cup was picked. I never hit another shot. I didn't play. Uh, I cracked my sternum, uh, but it, it healed. And I made the team in ninth spot. Yes. And uh, in, in the eight Ryder Cups I played, I was never picked. I, I qualified each time, but that was the closest it came to needing a pick. But that was only two times there. I, it seemed like it seemed like a lot more because I know, were, I know. I, no, maybe it's just because they were so interesting. 
<laughs> My mum used to have nightmares, quite bad ones too. <laughs> she once picked up a whole dresser and threw it onto the bed. I mean, you, two people could barely pick it, and she threw it on top of my dad in the bed. <laughs> she just, just get out of the way in time. Jeez. <laughs> Sam, you mentioned the Belfry and in, in, in that story, but but there's no doubt that the, the Belfry comes up plenty if you look at the career record of, of Sam Torrance. And, and obviously the, the 85 Ryder Cup winning putt stands out. Is okay. is that the highlight of your career? No, no. Uh, I'll give you that in a minute. It's, yeah. it's, the captaincy was a highlight by a mile. But but my it started for me in 1976 at the Belfry. They had the, the Hensley Cognac Cup, which was Europe versus Britain. And uh, I'm playing Seve in the singles. Now, it was very barren, but I loved the course. For some reason, I just fell in love with the Belfry. I thought it was a fantastic layout. But it was very barren in those days. So we're playing 17. and one down with two to play against the, the, the great Severiano Bayaceras. And uh, we'll, I've just missed the green on 17 right. And he's just front left. And he chops up, stone dead, made his four. So I'm one down. So I've got to hold my chip to get all square, and I duff it in front of my nose. Only goes about six feet, and then I chipped it in for a half. So I'm one down and want to play. So I'm, I'm so excited. I've gone over, and I, I've teed up my ball, did a practice swing, and I'm addressed the ball, and just out the corner of my eye, I see nothing. You know, normally you'll see a player's feet or shoes or whatever, so I just back off a bit, and I look, right? There's not another soul there. There's nobody there. And I look around, and I look over in the distance of 80, 90 yards away, Seve on the last tee. I'm on the frigging ninth. I was on the ninth <laughs> tee. And if you think about it, it's not that far away from the 18th tee. And I just wandered across, got on the tee and teed it up. And I'm, I don't know that the great Seve would have let me drive, but he may have done. <laughs> <laughs> he, he ended up three-putting the hole. And uh, I got half in the match, which will just... Can I just digress and go on? Because yeah, of course. It, yeah, of course. It leads on to just... Seve, the great man, changed my life. And he changed another man's life as well. Uh, many people's lives. But he, Miguel Angel Jimenez, which I'll tell you in a minute. But for me, it was the 1980 Australian PGA at Royal Melbourne. Seve was the Open champion. Uh, or 79. Was that when he won it? Yeah, 76. Oh. 79 he won it. the Open Championship. Yeah. Uh, Greg, there were one and two in the world. And I played with a pair of them in the last two rounds. I think it was two balls now, Greg the third and, and Seve the last round. And I beat him. I beat him by two shots, whatever, on the last hole. We come off the last green and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks at me with those eyes. And he always called me San, S-A-N. He said, hey, Sam, you're a tough man to beat, huh? And it, that, that just resonated with me for the rest of my life. That, to, to think that someone as great as Seve would think I'm tough to beat, give me so much self-belief. Now, I'd only won twice on tour. This was 1980. I've been on tour eight years. I won twice in 76. There was no other wins on the European tour. And after, I went on to win 21 times. And exactly the same thing happened to him in it. Exactly the same thing. When he was vice-captain Seve at Valderrama, he'd only won twice on tour. Twice. Seve made him vice-captain. Now, I don't know, I've asked him, but he's not told me. I don't know what Seve said to him to give him the confidence to go on and have a career. But he went on to win 21 times and become a megastar on the seniors tour. Uh, just incredible that, that, that the man was. Now, the best moment of life was, the 85 was extraordinary, to, to be lucky enough to be the man that hold the winning part. Uh, that, that changed my life in many ways that, that still have changed. 
But without doubt, the captaincy was a million miles the greatest week of my life. It was something I didn't really expect to be captain of the Ryder Cup. You know, when you're 17, 18 and you're on tour, and I was a wee bit of a reprobate, and, and I, it just didn't seem in my grasp. But uh, 97 or 98, when Ken Schofield said to Mark James and I, uh, you two are the next two captains, take your pick. And I had won the French Open in 98, so it must have been 98, end of 98, when Ken told us this. And uh, I looked at Jesse and said, look, Jess, I, I've just won French. I, I think I can make the team. He says, not a problem. Uh, I'll take Brookline. Did I make the right decision there or what? <laughs> Gee whiz. It wasn't even the right decision because I never came near to making the team, but uh, bless him, Jesse. <laughs> Sam, tell us about the first time you met Sevi because you knew he was coming, didn't you? His brother had told you. Ah, I smell, I smell a joke here. <laughs> <laughs> I smell one of your jokes. <laughs> yeah, Sevi was extraordinary. Uh, I played with Manuel, his brother, many times, and he said, you wait next year. Uh, you know, my brother, Sevi, he is fantastic. He is unbelievable. And sure enough, this kid comes out in 76. He was just magnificent, just out of this world. So it's an enigma. You know, when he walked into a room, you knew he had walked into the room. So we're on the range in Italy, obviously very early in his career. And he's about three, four behind me hit balls, my hit balls. And he passes wind. And, it's, and his, his English is not good. He's no, virtually no English at this point. But he has certainly got plenty of smell. I mean, this thing was just <laughs> People are running off the range with tears streaming down their eyes. And I've turned around to him and I've looked at him and said, Sevi, that's disgusting. And he looked at me and he says, hey, I eat food, no flowers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, someone, for someone that didn't have much English, I, I just loved that. But he, he, he became a great friend, a great companion, the best Ryder Cup team man on the planet. On the planet. He hated Americans, didn't he? Tell us, tell us that story. Uh, well, that was no, no, no. He just he, he didn't hate them. He just liked beating them. Uh, I think that came down to uh, someone, some uh, scribe who had said to him, "Steve called him Steve," and kept calling him Steve. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> I, I think that, that really upset him. But you know, it, the, I, I played in eight Ryder Cups, uh, and I was always in the sort of lower echelon of the Ryder Cup. Uh, for the star players, the top fives at Sevi, Woozy, Lang and Lyle, uh, Olafabal, whoever. And the greatest thing about being in that team was you can ask them anything, anything, and they'll help you about your swing, about difficult shots. And the, Sevi, uh, bless them. And I, they, they were very competent the top four or five uh, and that thick stuff around the greens that you get in America and we weren't really that good at it because uh, we didn't play that much in America we never got used to this thing and when you got used to it, it was actually very simple it was just basically a bunker shot so Sevi can can you help me please I've, I'm really struggling with, with this uh, oh no problem son no problem son come on we go so he'd be down there for an hour, hour and a half he'd spend as long as you wanted on on these these chipping shots and it would just be fantastic so the Ryder Cup's over. Two weeks later, it's the German Open, French Open, whichever, and I'm on the range. I'm just on the chipping green. I'm out of this thick stuff trying these shots, and Sevi's walking by. Sevi, please, oh, please, can, can you just help me a little bit with it? Hey, Sam, Sam, 
fuck off. I'll see you in two years. You <laughs> 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 want to say that again without the fuck? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you when you played uh, uh, early on in your career through the 80s, Okay, they they obviously, I mean, they were good players, Neil Coles, Brian Barnes, etc., Bernard Gallagher, Tommy Horton. But then the, the as they call them, the so-called big five came along. And that's when you actually excelled. That's when you won most of your tournaments where where when those guys were in the field. So you obviously lifted your game dramatically, you know, in the early middle eighties. Thanks to Savvy. Yeah, that was nineteen eighty, he told me that. You know, Sam, uh, yeah, I believe, yeah. I, I think 1983, uh, the week before the Ryder Cup, I was I'd qualified uh, my second Ryder Cup, and uh, I had an invite to the Southern Open, which I lost in a playoff to Ronnie Black. Now, if I'd won that, I would have been in America for sure, three-year exemption, I'd been there in the shot, but I didn't. And I came back to Europe and and won three times that year, and just. I loved it. I loved Europe. And to, to say why I stayed there and why that was where I belonged, when I got to the seniors, I, I went to get my card on the seniors champions tour in America and I got the seven cards out of 1,500 players, whatever, and I got a card. It was, I, I cried for half an hour after that because this was the biggest achievement of my life in my mind. I'd now found my new home, the place where I wanted to play. But I couldn't, I couldn't take it. Uh, I, I just, I'm such a home person. I, uh, you know, you're there for three weeks, you're home for a week, you're there for four weeks, you're home for a week. And it only lasted six months on the Champions Tour. I, I love the people. I love that I've got some fantastic American friends through the years over the Ryder Cup. But I couldn't settle because I'm a home bird. I just like going home to my own bed and my, my wife and family. Now, at that same time, you're playing, you're playing the best golf of your life. But you're traveling with a maniac, David Fehetti. Oh, douche. <laughs> Shall I tell you a story about Fairty? Yes. Come on, come on. We need a few. Okay. So it's we're playing the Lancome event. Very established, very beautiful golf course in Normal Arbitage, uh, near Versailles, outside Paris. Uh, one of the best. Uh, it used to be a 10-man event with Gary Player and Arnold Palmer and the guys, Nicholas. Uh, but then it developed into slightly bigger and became a tour event. So we're playing there and... Uh, there's a prize for low round of the week, and it's a Rolex watch, which in the second round I shot 63, and it became the low round of the week, which was going to be, I had to be at the prize given on the Sunday night. Now, I did, the 63 was all I did that week, no, nothing else. So I'm, I'm down the field. So I finished on Sunday, and I've had a few glasses of wine, and I've headed to the prize giving, which is out in the lawns, the beautiful lawns. Uh, but the special part of my prize was it was going to be presented to me by Isabella Rossellini, oh. who was just, she was voted the most beautiful woman on the planet the year before. And she, trust me, she was. Anyway, so it's now Sunday night. There I am, happy as Larry, in my light grey trousers, navy blue golf shirt, which I always wore on the Sunday. Not always, but most times. And uh, I'm sitting there, very happy. And I'm looking over and all the dignitaries are there, the, the, the sponsors, the first, the runner-up, the third, the leading amateur and Isabella Rossellini. And I'm just looking over at her and she is so beautiful. I'm like, wow. And then just out of the corner of her eye, I see movement. So I turn around to the right and there, 10 yards from me is Bertie with the biggest shit eating grin on his face. 
And I'm thinking, what is he doing there? He's not at the prize given. And he's looking straight at me and he's laughing now. And he now gets three yards from me. And from behind his back, he brings round a pint of water. And he throws it, shoof, all over my crotch. <laughs> and I looked up and he's gone. Like a scamper rat, gone. And what has he done? So he's poured a pint of water over my crotch. So I've now got to got to the most beautiful <laughs> woman in the world with, uh, you know, Dale, you've not gone to the toilet, Dale, have you? <laughs> I've got to get into the sun. <laughs> so I've had to go up to Isabella Rossellini with a, a crotch that looks like I'm <laughs> wet myself. But, uh, probably the most embarrassing moment of my career but uh, I talked myself out of it obviously just told her the story you want to go to uh, to Kiowa yes with Ferti yes yeah so <laughs> he was my best friend I mean Ali was my best I'd so I'd, you get so few best friends in your life but Ferti and Ali were definitely two of them and uh, so we're in the same line of cup 1999 uh, Kiwa Island, not 99, sorry, Kiwa Island, 2000, when was it? 2000, uh, 91. 91. 91. Yeah. 91. More on the shore. Yeah, it wasn't really, but anyway, <laughs> he, uh, well, prior to that, he'd, he'd made the team. So now we're both in the team. And he says, no, come on, tell me, no, I'm there. What is it really like? And he has two, he had, at the same time, he had two kids, exact same age as mine. And I, I said, it's kind of like him, kind of like having a child playing the Ryder Cup. You can't really explain to someone who hasn't had a child what it's like to have a child. You just can't explain that bond. And it's exactly the same with the Ryder Cup. You cannot explain what that does to you, what that feels to you, what that makes you part of. I mean, in watching the Olympics the last two weeks, there's a wonderful insight into what team's about, you know, and, and that's what the Ryder Cup is. It's, uh, so he's made the team. And we get drawn to play together. There's two things happened. One, he didn't start very well. We're playing Watkins, Watkins, and can't remember that. Way. And we're we're both best mates with Watkins as well, who was just as tough a little character as you could ever find. So uh, it was four ball, and he would, he just wasn't to be seen first two three holes. And I I grabbed a hold of him. Uh, I think it was coming off the second green. If you don't get your finger out your backside, I'm going to go and join the Americans. It'll be three hours against you. Which was just, <laughs> it was just a wee jest, but it's something you could say to your your best mate to, to jolt them into, into action. And by God, did he jolt into action. And we had a fantastic match that finished all square. But the, the other one was coming off the 11th, up to the 10th or 11th tee. I think it was the uh, 10th green to the 11th tee. And along this path, and this Lady Marshall, standing right in front of Ferti, puts her hand up against his chest and says, you can't come through here. So, of course, Ferti's he's, he's playing, he's on the tee, and he, he gets her under the oxters, armpits, and lifts her up and puts in the side and says, yes, I can. <laughs> and onto the tee. Sam, you, you mentioned that, that for you the highlight was, was winning the Ryder Cup as, as a captain. What are some of the key recollections of that week? Well, I had, I had two plans. I had my pairing. Before I arrived there, 
uh, I had my pairings done for the three days. Uh, I had my sil- singles order done. And this was my plan in my mind. Of course, I get there and everything went out the window apart from my plan of the singles. The first, the first key moment of change was Thursday night when I've got to put in the draw for the morning for the opening matches, four balls. And I put a pair out that hadn't even played in the same four ball in practice. They had not been anywhere near each other. But just something hit me on Thursday night that these two, these two are going to work. And I hadn't seen it. And it was Garcia and Westwood. And we can virtually my strongest pairing of the week. And, and they were magnificent. But that was the first uh, a good decision or best. One of the best decisions I made was put them two out. But we'll, we'll cut to the chase to, to uh, singles. Uh, we're eight all going into the singles. And uh, this two years, three years prior, the Sunningdale Centenary Dinner, I was sitting next to Bugsy Holland, a Sunningdale member. And uh, he said to me, you know, you couldn't do it any better than putting your best player out first and your worst player out last. And that stuck with me right through thick and thin, right up until Saturday night when it's time to do the singles or them. My vice captains, Jesse Woozy and Joachim Hegman, uh, I said to them, look, I've got a plan, do you mind? And they said, no, of course not, of course not. So, okay, just leave it to me. So it, it was an easy decision to, to put out the order. The hardest decision or the hardest thing to do about it was to tell the press how you came up with your order. You can't really say I put my best player out first, my worst player out last, because yeah. <laughs> you can't say worst player about anything. So my reasoning behind it was, it all, no, no matter what the scenario was, 10-6 to them, 10-6 to us, 7-5, whatever the score was get into the singles, I could not see a scenario whereby where going from the front, just going from the front and just going and just getting them done, get the points on the board and take the trophy home. So that's where, that's where I went. And bless him, Curtis Strange, another great American friend of mine, a really good friend, known him up just all his life, virtually. And he, he, it turned out to be an error. It may not have been an error uh, if things had been different, but he, he had Mickelson and Woods, number one and two in the world, in the last three matches. Now, uh, I just, I mean, I, I didn't plan it for him to do that, but to me, to leave, you need them on the course and, 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 and winning points for your team, basically. And by the time it came to them, the match was over. There is a wonderful story there I could tell you uh, about a young Welshman named Philip Price. Oh, and yeah. Phil Mickelson. Who, yeah. who yeah. was playing the legendary Phil Mickelson in the singles order. Now, on the, on the, uh, the sixth hole, Mickel- it's, it's a fantastic short par four, water on the left, burn you got to carry, 220 to carry the burn, bunker on the right, Mickelson up the middle, Price has, has pulled it, and he's not in the hazard, but he's in the hazard to hit it. So he's completely screwed. Mickelson hits the second shot first to three feet. Unbelievable shot. Philip Price gets in there. One foot in the edge of the water, other foot up, and, and he snap hooks this thing. There's like a 60-yard hook on it, up to five feet. Unbelievable shot. Shot of the week, best shot of the week. He holds the puck. Mickelson misses. So the young Welsh wizard. Now, three Marukis were in the last four matches. 
my three rookies that were in the last four matches, and he was one of them. And my thoughts on that, in that scenario, that, that cauldron uh, of, of the end of the round of cup, I don't care who you are. You can either stand up or you can fall down. And it doesn't matter how good you are. And I really trusted my, my rookies. I really did. So he, he beats Phil Mickelson three and two. We'll cut forward. It's now a Sunday night. It's all over. We've won. It's one o'clock in the morning. The celebrations are mad. <laughs> and Lee Westwood comes in fine. Susanna and myself says, come on, you got to go. We've got to go to the main bar. You've got to go to the main bar. Come on. So we go to the main bar with Lee Westwood. And it, it, there's a thousand people in. I can count them. You can't move. It's shoulder to shoulder all around the room. But he's got this, this settee cleared where any player he finds, he jumps up on the sofa and he introduces them, the, the player to the room. Kind of like the, the, the guy starts with the wrestling uh, or the boxing. You know, like he shouts, and then there's, here we go. So he's found Susanna Knight. He gets Susanna up, the crowd go mad. Get me up, the crowd go mad. And then they find Phil Price. So he's about to leap Phil Price up on the sofa. So Phil's climbing up on the sofa and he starts slamming uh, Westwood in the arse. He's punching him on the arse and he shouts out, tell him who I beat, tell him who I beat. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear to you, I saw, I saw Phil Price at the Seniors Open at Sunningdale a few weeks ago and still got wonderful memories. And, and all I did was shout at the button, tell him who I beat. And he came over, he came over laughing his head off and he says, you know, I can't go uh, uh, a hole on the senior tour where someone doesn't shout out in the crowd. Tell him who I beat. Tell him who I beat. <laughs> <laughs> and he's such a quiet, beautiful human being. It was such a wonderful moment, one I will never forget. And one of my lasting memories of that, that, that incredible week for me and my wife. Sam, Paul McGinley, the man coached by your father, sinking the winning putt. I mean, you can't write a better story than that either, can you? No. <laughs> he... Uh, it was the extraordinary scenario at uh, the last. Uh, I'm sitting down front left of the, just over the bridge. Uh, Paul's pulled his second shot left. And uh, no, it was easing to hold the bunker shot. It was fury. It is, it was, yeah. Christ, I, I mean, if you looked at both shots, both bunker shots, easing around Furyk's bunker shots, uh, Furyk's is the one that looks like it's going to go in, uh, but it didn't, fortunately. But I'm sitting down the front left there and I said something strange to Paul as he's come over the bridge. And I said, listen, we don't want to do it for you. I don't want to do it for Europe. Do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, it was just all feeling, just, just all feeling. But uh, it was an incredible moment for Paul, for, for Europe, uh, for me, for everyone. And we, we had uh, Tiger Woods and, and uh, Jasper Parnovic in the last match, which Jasper ended up having. And also in the second, I think it was Davis Love and, Oh, God. Swedish. Pierre Fulke. Yeah, Pierre Fulke. Pierre Fulke. Was it Davis Love? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he was one up playing the last. That was behind. So there was still opportunities to come. But when uh, McGinley's part went in, that was extraordinarily uh, special. A Ryder Cup this year. It's kind of seeing like who the teams could be sort of playing out now. But who do you fancy? Uh, well, you know, both streams look very strong. I mean, American... Team as usual looks extremely strong on paper, but Europe looks very strong as well. Uh, there's a there's going to be a couple missing. I don't know if we're going to see Stenson. Don't think we'll see Rose. Um, probably Poulter. Definitely Westwood. 
Yeah. Uh, but the new guard, the new guard is extraordinary. You know, the Hovland, well, McElroy's no new, new guard, but... Uh, Fitzpatrick? Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. No, it's the other one with the temper. Hatton. Uh, Hatton. Yeah, Terrell Hatton. He's one of my favourites. and he's, he's awesome. He'll be great in the Ryder Cup. The Hovland will be fantastic. And, and the, the, the usual crew up there, it's, it's uh, Casey's going to be there, Westwood's going to be there. No, it's, it's going to be tight. It's uh, a lot of pressure on the Americans because they're at home. I, know, I always fancy Europe. I'm never going to say I fancy America. <laughs> Sam, can we, uh, can we talk a bit of sort of post-playing playing stuff and, and, and your time since, since retiring from the tour, retiring from playing? You've obviously played some senior stuff, but particularly I want to touch on your, on your commentating and how, you know, obviously as, as, as a former Ryder Cup captain and winning captain and a former player, you know, it's not a major stretch, but not every player and every Ryder Cup captain finds their way into the commentating booth. First of all, how did it come about and how have you approached commentating? Well, I retired two years ago. I started with the BBC a long time ago with the legendary Peter Alice. It was something that I, I fell in love with almost immediately. And basically, uh, I would be, my commentary would be me sitting at home watching golf and don't swear. <laughs> Which was, was difficult. Must, be very, must be very difficult for you. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, but, no, I love my commentary. Uh, I, I, I worked with World Feed and Dale, and we had fantastic times out there. Uh, kind of like being back on tour without having the pressure to play. I remember almost the first time I was commentating, it's about 10 to 12. And as, as I'm making my way towards the lift to get to my room, I suddenly stopped and thought, I only have to talk tomorrow. <laughs> turned back around and went back to the bar <laughs> hence I fell in love with commentary but it's, it was something I really enjoyed I love being a part of it and uh, now I'm playing three times a week at Sunningdale absolutely useless can't break 80 and I really mean that I'm useless but I'm trying to find the love again but it seems to be far away but uh, I've, I've had a wonderful incredible life in golf and uh, I have no complaints yeah, you said, I mean, that's one of the hardest things about seniors golf is dealing with the mediocrity, isn't it? Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, until you look around you. <laughs> 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 and you see, you're actually a wee bit ahead of me, you got mediocrity with it, what's around you. But that, that was a long time ago. Yeah. That was, seven, that was nearly 18 years ago, uh, I turned senior. Uh, wow. I did 11 years out there. And then loved every minute of it. And then it was quite amazing. You know, I always say when I can't do it, I'll stop. And I, I, I called up my manager, Vicky. I said, look, Vicky, I need some information. I, I want the last three years. I want my finishes. I want my scores. I want where I finished. Blah, blah, blah. And she came back. I was over 200 over par. And my best finish was 31st. And I thought, that's it. Bye-bye. <laughs> How did that feel, Sam, at the time? It felt like a, like a cracker, let me tell you. Not, <laughs> and, you know, to never see a pencil in my hand again would be was a, a great delight. It was it was tough to let go, but I let go late. I let go two three years too late. You know, you just don't yeah. see it coming. I still went out even after two years of not breaking whatever and not finishing the top thirty. I still saw myself every week as winning the tournament, but eventually it, it kicks in and you realise, hey, it's time for another move. <laughs> Yeah, Sam. Just uh, one one thing I, I picked up the last year that I played on the tour. One of the last tournaments I ever played was the European Open at Walton Heath, and you might remember Tom Kite won. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah, you finished fifth. Yep, in a tie with Bernard Langer, 
Bernard Gallagher, Dare Smythe. I think there were five of you. And what, what, what the reason I remember it is I chipped in on the last hole to beat you by a shot. <laughs> I just wanted to remind you of that. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're a legend. <laughs> and at the time, you're a guy that, that you know very well and who looked off, managed you for a while, John Simpson, as I walked oh, off the green, he said, you know, you've just beaten Sam by a shot. Because I don't <laughs> think the other guys were in yet. I think you and I were the only first two in or something. <laughs> but I Sam, remember you. I remember you. Listen, Hazy. I remember you with that pink butter in your hand, walking to the first tee, like seven shots behind. I would think I was leaving. He says, "Watch the leaderboard, Torrance. I'm coming." And I think you birdied five of the six of the first eight. So, I think you always had the upper hand with me, Dale. <laughs> but you know, Sam, you've had a wonderful career. You know, you you played over seven hundred tournaments. You had well over 40 wins around the world, 21 on the European Tour, Ryder Cup captain. You, you know, you've been awarded the MBE, the OBE. I mean, it won't be long before it's going to be Sir Sam, I'm sure. Sir Sam and Sir Nick. I mean, it just it comes off the tongue ever so easy, doesn't it? Steady, steady. <laughs> Sir Sam. But you've had a wonderful career. And I, I think, you know, I think if your father was looking down right now, he'd say, you know, Sam, I'm really proud of you. No, I'm, proud, I'm proud of the way you've conducted yourself. I'm proud of the fact that you've made so many friends in golf all over the world. Very, very rarely. In fact, I can't think of once where I've ever heard a word said about you that hasn't been positive. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. You're very kind, old pal. Thank, Thank you, you, Sam. It's been a thoroughly Thanks, enjoying, enjoyable hour and we really appreciate your, your memories, your insight to, and your time. Thanks again. I didn't think it would take an hour for Hayes to make me cry, but it did. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Sam. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.